Section 26 of From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Bodorf. From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. Edited by Olive Beaupre Miller. Winter Neighbors by John Burroughs. The country is more of a wilderness, more of a wild solitude in the winter than in the summer. He should hardly know a good field from a poor, a meadow from a pasture, a park from a forest. The best-kept grounds relapse to a state of nature. Under the pressure of the cold, all the wild creatures become outlaws and roam abroad beyond their usual haunts. The partridge comes to the orchard for buds. The rabbit comes to the garden and lawn. The crows and jays come to the ash heap and corn crib, the snow buntings to the stack and to the barnyard, the sparrows pilfer from the domestic fowls, the pine grosbeak comes down from the north and shears your maples of their buds, the fox prowls around your premises at night, and the red squirrels find your grain in the barn or steal the butternuts from your attic. Winter, like poverty, makes us acquainted with strange bedfellows. For my part, my nearest approach to a strange bedfellow is the little gray rabbit that has taken up her abode under my study floor. As she spends the days here and is out larking at night, she's not much of a bedfellow after all. It is probable that I disturb her slumbers more than she does mine. I think she's some support to me under there. A silent, wild-eyed witness and backer. A type of gentle and harmless in the savage nature. She has no sagacity to give me or lend me, but that soft, nimble foot of hers, and that touch as of cotton wherever she goes, are worthy of emulation. I think I can feel her good will through the floor, and I hope she can feel mine. When I have a happy thought I imagine her ears twitch, especially when I think of the sweet apple I will place by her doorway at night. I wonder if that fox chanced to catch a glimpse of her the other night when he stealthily leaped over the fence nearby and walked along between the study and the house. How clearly one could read that it was not a little dog that had passed there. There was something furtive in the track. It shied off away from the house and around it, as if eyeing it suspiciously. And then it had the caution and deliberation of the fox. Bold, bold, but not too bold. Weariness was in every footprint. If it had been a little dog that had chanced to wander that way, when he crossed my path he would have followed up to the barn and gone sniffing around for a bone. But this sharp, cautious track held straight across all others, keeping five or six rods from the house, up the hill, across the highway, towards a neighborhood farmstead, with its nose in the air and its eye and ear alert, so to speak. A winter neighbor of mine in whom I am interested is a little red owl, whose retreat is in the heart of an old apple tree just over the fence. Where he keeps himself in spring and summer I do not know, but late every fall and at intervals all winter his hiding place is discovered by the jays and nuthatches, and proclaimed from the treetops for the space of half an hour or so, with all the powers of voice they can command. Four times during one winter they called me out to behold this little ogre feigning sleep in his den, sometimes in one apple tree, sometimes in another. 
Whenever I heard their cries I knew my neighbor was being berated. The birds would take turns at looking in upon him and uttering their alarm notes. Every jay within hearing would come to the spot and at once approach the hole in the trunk or limb, and with a kind of breathless eagerness and excitement take a peep at the owl, and then join the outcry. When I approached they would hastily take a final look and then withdraw, and regard my movements intently. After accustoming my eye to the faint light of the cavity for a few moments, I could usually make out the owl at the bottom feigning sleep. Feigning, I say, because that is what he really did, as I first discovered one day, when I cut into his retreat with the axe. The loud blows and the falling chips did not disturb him at all. When I reached in a stick and pulled him over on his side, leaving one of his wings spread out, he made no attempt to recover himself, but lay among the chips and fragments of decayed wood, like a part of themselves. Indeed, it took a sharp eye to distinguish him. Nor till I had pulled him forth by one wing, rather rudely, did he abandon the trick of simulated sleep or death. Then, like a detected pickpocket, he suddenly transformed into another creature. His eyes flew wide open, his talons clutched my finger, his ears were depressed, and every motion and look said, Hands off at your peril. Finding this game did not work, he soon began to play possum again. Just at dusk in the winter's nights I often hear his soft burr, very pleasing and bell-like. What a furtive woody sound it is in the winter stillness, so unlike the harsh scream of the hawk. But all the ways of the owl are ways of softness and duskiness. His wings are shod with silence, his plumage is edged with down. Another owl neighbor of mine, with whom I pass the time of day more frequently than with the last, lives further away. I pass his castle every night on my way to the post office, and in winter, if the hour is late enough, am pretty sure to see him standing in his doorway, surveying the passers-by and the landscape through narrow slits in his eyes. As the twilight begins to deepen, he raises out of his cavity in the apple tree, scarcely faster than the moon rises from behind the hill, and sitting in the opening, completely framed by its outlines of gray bark and dead wood, and by his protective color virtually invisible to every eye that does not know he is there. Dozens of teams and foot passengers pass him late in the day, but he regards them not, nor they, him. When I come alone and pause to salute him, he opens his eyes a little wider, and appearing to recognize me, quickly shrinks and fades into the background of his door in a very weird and curious manner. When he is not at his outlook, or when he is, it requires the best powers of the eye to decide the point, as the empty cavity itself is almost an exact image of him. If the whole thing had been carefully studied, it could not have answered its purpose better. The owl stands quite perpendicular, presenting a front of light mottled gray. The eyes are closed to a mere slit, the ear feathers depressed, the beak buried in the plumage, and the whole attitude is one of silent, motionless waiting and observation. If a mouse should be seen crossing the highway, or scudding over any exposed part of the snowy landscape in the twilight, the owl would doubtless swoop down upon it. Whether bluebirds, nuthatches, and chickadees, birds that pass the night in cavities of trees, ever run into the clutches of the dozing owl, I should be glad to know. 
My impression is, however, that they seek out smaller cavities. An old willow by the roadside blew down one summer, and a decayed branch broke open, revealing a brood of half-fledged owls and many feathers and quills of bluebirds, orioles, and other songsters, showing plainly enough why all birds fear and berate the owl. The English house sparrows, that are so rapidly increasing among us, and that must add greatly to the food supply of the owls and other birds of prey, seek to baffle their enemies by roosting in the densest evergreens they can find, in the arbor vitae and in hemlock hedges. Soft-winged as the owl is, he cannot steal in upon such a retreat without giving them warning. These sparrows are becoming about the most noticeable of my winter neighbors, and a troop of them every morning watch me put out the hen's feed, and soon claim their share. I rather encouraged them in their neighborness, till one day I discovered the snow under a favorite plum tree, where they most frequently perched, covered with the scales of the fruit buds. On investigating, I found that the tree had been nearly stripped of its buds. A very neighborly act on the part of the sparrows, considering, too, all the cracked corn I had scattered for them. So I at once served notice on them that our good understanding was at an end and a hint is as good as a kick with this bird. The stone I hurled among them, and the one with which I followed them up, may have been taken as a kick. The sparrows left in high dudgeon, and were not back again in some days, and were then very shy. Our native birds are much different, less prolific, less shrewd, less aggressive and persistent, less quick-witted and able to read the note of danger or hostility. In short, less sophisticated. Most of our birds are yet essentially wild, that is, little changed by civilization. In winter, especially, they sweep by me and around me in flocks. The Canada sparrow, the snow bunting, the shorelock, the pine grosbeak, the red pole, the cedar bird, feeding upon frozen apples in the orchards, upon cedar berries, upon maple buds, and the berries of the mountain ash upon the seeds of the weeds that rise above the snow in the field, or upon the hayseed dropped where the cattle have been foddered in the barnyard, or about the distant stack. But yet taking no heed of man, in no way changing their habits so as to take advantage of his presence in nature, the pine grosbeaks will come in numbers upon your porch to get the black droops of the honeysuckle and the woodbine, or within reach of your windows to get the berries of the mountain ash, but they know you not. They look at you as innocently and unconcernedly as at a bear or a moose in their native north, and your house is no more to them than a ledge of rocks. The only ones of my winter neighbors that actually rap at my door are the nuthatches and woodpeckers, and these do not know that it is my door. My retreat is covered with the bark of young chestnut trees, and the birds, I suspect, mistake it for a huge stump that ought to hold fat grubs. There's not even a bookworm inside of it, and their loud rapping often makes me think I have a collar indeed. I place fragments of hickory nuts in the interstices of the bark, and thus attract the nuthatches. A bone upon my window seal attracts both nuthatches and the downy woodpecker. They peep in curiously through the window upon me, pecking away at my bone, too often a very poor one. Even the slate-colored snowbird, a seed-eater, comes in and nibbles it occasionally. The bird that seems to consider he has the best right to the bone is the downy woodpecker, 
my favorite among the winter birds. His retreat is but a few paces from my own, in the decayed limb of an apple tree which he excavated several autumns ago. I say he because the red plume on the top of his head proclaims the sex. It seems not to be generally known that certain of our woodpeckers, probably all the winter residents, each fall excavate a limb or the trunk of a tree in which to pass the winter, and that the cavity is abandoned in the spring, probably for a new one. So far as I have observed, these cavities are drilled out only by the males. Where the females take up their quarters I am not so well informed, though I suspect that they use the abandoned holes of the males of the previous year. The particular woodpecker to which I refer drilled his first hole in my apple tree one fall, four or five years ago. It is a satisfaction during the cold and stormy winter nights to know he is warm and cozy there in his retreat. When the day is bad and unfit to be abroad in, he is there too. When I wish to know if he is at home, I go and rap upon his tree, and if he is not too lazy or indifferent, after some delay he shows his head in his round doorway about ten feet above and looks down inquiringly upon me sometimes laterally, I think half resentfully, as much as to say, I would thank you not to disturb me so often. Such a cavity makes a snug, warm home, and when the entrance is on the underside of the limb, as is usual, the wind and snow cannot reach the occupant. In digging out these retreats, the woodpeckers prefer a dry, brittle trunk, not too soft. They go in horizontally to the center, and then turn downward, enlarging the tunnel as they go, till when finished it is the shape of a long, deep pear. Another trait our woodpeckers have that endears them to me is their habit of drumming in the spring. They are songless birds, and yet all are musicians. They make the dry limbs eloquent of the coming change. Did you think that loud, sonorous hammering, which proceeded from the orchard or from the near woods on that still March or April morning, was only some bird getting its breakfast? It is downy, but he is not rapping at the door of a grub. He is rapping at the door of spring, and the dry limb thrills beneath the ardor of his blows. Or later in the season, in the dense wood or by some remote mountain lake, does that measured rhythmic beat that breaks upon the silence, first three strokes following each other rapidly, succeeded by two louder ones with longer intervals between them, and that has an effect upon the alert ear, as if the solitude itself had at last found a voice. Does that suggest anything less than a deliberate musical performance? In fact, our woodpeckers are just as characteristically drummers as is the ruffled grouse, and they have their particular limbs and stubs to which they resort for that purpose. Their need of expression is apparently just as great as that of the songbirds, and it is not surprising that they should have found out that there is music in a dry, seasoned limb that can be evoked beneath their beaks. A few seasons ago, a downy woodpecker began to drum early in March in a partly decayed apple tree that stands in the edge of a narrow strip of woodland near me. The bird would keep his position there for an hour at a time. Between his drummings, he would preen his plumage and listen as if for the response of the female or for the drum of some rival. How swift his head would go when he was delivering his blows upon the limb. After some weeks the female appeared. He had literally drummed up a mate. 
His urgent and oft-repeated advertisement was answered. Still the drumming did not cease, but was quite as fervent as before. If a mate could be won by drumming, she could be kept and entertained by more drumming. Courtship should not end with marriage. If the bird felt musical before, of course he felt much more so now. The woodpeckers do not have each a particular dry limb to which they resort at all times to drum, like the one I have described. The woods are full of suitable branches, and they drum more or less here and there as they are in the quest of food. Yet I am convinced each one has its favorite spot, like the grouse, to which it resorts, especially in the morning. The sugar-maker in the maple woods may notice that this sound proceeds from the same tree or trees about his camp with great regularity. A woodpecker in my vicinity is drummed for two seasons on a telegraph pole, and he makes the wires and glass insulators ring. Another drums on a thin board on the end of a long grape arbor, and on still mornings can be heard a long distance. The high hole appears to drum more promiscuously than does the downy. He utters his long, loud spring call, thwack, 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 and then begins to rap with his beak upon his perch before the last note has reached your ear. I have seen him drum sitting on the ridge of a barn. Our smaller woodpeckers are sometimes accused of injuring the apple and other fruit trees, but the depredator is probably the larger and rarer yellow-bellied series. One autumn I caught one of these fellows in the act of sinking long rows of his little wells in the limb of an apple tree. In the following winter the same bird, probably, tapped a maple tree in front of my window in fifty-six places, and when the day was sunny and the sap oozed out, he spent most of his time there. He knew the good sap days and was on hand promptly for his tipple. Cold and cloudy days he did not appear. He knew which side of the tree to tap on, too, and avoided the sunless northern exposure. When one series of well holes failed to supply him, he would sink another, drilling through the bark with great ease and quickness. Then, when the day was warm and the sap ran freely, he would have a regular sugar maple debauch, sitting there by his wells hour after hour, and as fast as they became filled, sipping out the sap. He made a row of wells near the foot of the tree, and two rows higher up, and he would hop up and down the trunk as these became filled. He would hop down the tree backward with the utmost ease, throwing his tail outward and his head inward at each hop. When the wells would freeze or his thirst became slaked, he would ruffle his feathers, draw himself together, and sit and doze in the sun on the side of the tree. This woodpecker does not breed or abound in my vicinity. Only stray specimens are now and then to be met in the colder months. As spring approached, the one I refer to took his departure. End of section 26. Winter Neighbors.